I started writing stories and, you know, I, I, I said, Hey, you know, it was kind of like Arsenio Hall. I, I did my story. Um, and they loved it. And so I was like, okay, I got to keep going. I kind of, I got to keep doing this. And so throughout the time, really what saved my sanity throughout teaching was to develop or imagine this new, this new world. And sometimes I would take, I would do exercises with the kids where we would make up a story on our, you know, all on our own together, Mm -hmm. like the class story of the day. You're listening to Chats with Kat, where I catch up with my fellow millennials every week to share their journey of self-actualization, overcoming fear, and paving the way for a soul's purpose to shine through. Let's start that right here, right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Chats with Kat. I am so excited to be back. Sorry that I didn't release an episode last week but I was in Miami visiting family I uh, was in town to celebrate my sister's 18th birthday and I just took some time to be present and I didn't really want to think about work and doing you know things so (laughs) I tried to do that but as life may have it I didn't get a chance to do much of it and I think I'm gonna do an episode about this in the future but just to kind of loop you all into what's going on in my life right now, I have a lot of things that I'm juggling, but I am grateful for all of them. I currently have this show, which I absolutely love doing. I have my day job, which is a nine to five gig. And then I have my organization, Goddess Council, which is officially up and running. We have our website, goddesscouncil.org. And I'm so, so, so thrilled to be part of that. But one thing about Goddess Council is that I really did not know that it was going to take off in the way that it's taken off. And I'm so grateful that we have created something that aligns with some of the, you know, things that a lot of people have been looking for. But I I really didn't know that this is how it was going to be. So when I put it out into the world, which is like in May, when I first started having meetups, I just did it innocently. I really didn't think anything of it. I thought that I would make maybe a few friends out of it and that was all I was looking for. But as time is passing by, there's more people who want to sign up, more people want to get involved and I'm just like, oh, okay, I don't have enough space but I have to look for options and I have to do this and I have to make sure that they're included and I want to make sure that we're reaching out to people that are not only in New York, that are in other places and it is all amazing. I am so grateful for it because I really do feel like I've found something that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I really feel like that about podcasting too, but in terms of actually creating something in the world that people can can see and feel in real life and healing people and, and, and facilitating that and also healing myself in the process is something that I didn't anticipate really in, in this project. So <laughs> over the past few weeks, the team and I have just really been cranking things out. We've been meeting up a lot. We've been trying to clarify things and I'm realizing more and more that this is definitely going to be a business and the amazing women who have helped me put this together and who are part of it every single day and who believe in it and who are committed are just like really going at it. And as somebody who 
you know, birth the idea. I've just recently been trying to navigate all of these moving pieces because I, I honestly, I honestly didn't know I would have all of this to juggle. But again, I feel very blessed. So <laughs> I say all of that to say that my week in Miami was much needed. And that's why I didn't put out a show. And that's why I didn't really want to be too hard on myself about it either. Because I think we all need it. And um, I, I want to talk about this more in another episode. But for now, this episode is going to be about an amazing, amazing woman who we will learn about in just a moment. But before we get to that, I want to give a quick shout out to Ella Fly, who left a review on the Apple Podcast app. And the review says, you know, that feeling you get after finishing hot yoga where you just feel good and glowing and grounded and on top of your shit. <laughs> That's what listening to an episode of Chats with Kat is like. Kat and her guests always find a way to be both down to earth and inspiring. It makes me feel good about what's going on in the world and reassures me of my potential to positively contribute. Ella Fly, thank you. I I'm smiling so big right now. I'm so glad that you feel like that when you listen to the show. I mean, oh, wow. You know, like this is this is everything. Especially what I'm saying when I feel really overwhelmed and I feel like I'm not doing things right or I don't know what I'm what I should be working on and and everything is just like moments like this make me feel like the work that I am doing is just it's good enough and that's something that I'm trying to wrap my head around so thank you for grounding me and thank you for affirming me thank you for listening and thank you for showing love I appreciate you so much please dm me find my email um please dm me on instagram or email me and send me your address so I can send you some free merch I would love to get some things out to you and for everybody else listening please leave a review on the apple podcast app to have a chance to be featured on next week's show. So enough of that. Uh, I want to jump into this week's guest. Uh, this week's guest is Yahaira de la Espada. Yahaira is an educator and author of The Alphabet of Enchantment Island, a bilingual alphabet book about the magic of being Boricua and the African heritage of Puerto Rico. In our chat, we discuss the inspiration behind this book what it means to be a child imagination specialist. That is a term that Yahaira herself coined. We also talked about Afro-Latinidad and a lot more. I hope you all enjoy it. And as always, please, please, please share this episode with somebody that you really think could benefit from the things that we talked about. Sharing is caring. And this is all about spreading the wealth and the knowledge and the love and all of the goodness, okay? Without any further delay, here's my chat with Yahaira. Hi, Yahaira. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Hi, Kat. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I wanted to finally get some of your insights and your gems because you're doing a lot of great things. And uh, I think that obviously my audience would love to know more about you. And um, I want to know more about you. So <laughs> here we are. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, did you grow up in Miami? No, unfortunately, I did not. I grew up in a small military town called Colleen Fort Hood in Texas. Mm, why'd you say unfortunately? You, you didn't like it there? Um, well, yeah, I sh maybe I should say fortunately, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a love-hate relationship with both places, uh, Miami and my hometown. Um, but Miami, it always will, I think, kind of win because of the beach. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. That's that's a, <laughs> the reason why I guess a lot of people move over there. But 
I mean, what was it like? Or I've actually never met anybody who grew up um, in that kind of environment. So what was that like for you? Were you an only child? No. So I was the older sister of two younger brothers. And it's funny because I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Uh, growing up in a military town was uh, like very stressful in the mm. sense of, you know, people were parents were always leaving and being deployed. And a lot of people don't talk about that in, in the sense of, you know, single parent homes. Um, you know, my context was a single parent home because of, you know, people either got, you know, um, shot in the line of, of duty or, you know, they were just deployed a lot. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree that this isn't talked about enough and it's really important that people remember that, you know, like everybody who goes overseas and everybody who's deployed has a family here and, um, yeah, there's obviously repercussions to everything and there are people that are always affected. So, that's really interesting to know. So you actually ended up coming to Miami for your master's, right? I did. Yeah. Okay. So you got your master's in education and community psych from the University of Miami, which is a really, really Go good Canes. school. Yeah. So how was that like? <laughs> what was the process like for you there? Because that's a, that's a crazy transition. Yeah. So so the process of, of all of it was actually uh, crazy. So I had never... Uh, visited Miami before moving here. What? Yeah, yeah, girl. I had a tia. She came from Panama. She she immigrated here for a little bit to Miami, and she said that it reminded her of Panama. So I was like, you know, if I can, if I can't get back to Panama, at least I can, you know, experience Miami and kind of be close to my people. And so I moved here, not knowing anybody, not knowing, you know, the the culture or the terrain or anything. I just knew that there was a beach, and I wanted to be close by the water. And uh, nobody in my family has ever gotten this far with their education. Um, I, I say I was the first to get a bachelor's in my family, but my dad will say that he got it first. He actually got his when he was deployed in Iraq. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I really, you know, talk about first generation uh, daughter of immigrants. Um, there's a lot on your shoulders and a lot that you, you know, feel that maybe you have to prove. So I, I wanted to come here to Miami and, and do a really good job at it because I know that there was a lot of eyes on this kind of, uh, you know, decision I made. Of course. I really want to dive into that because there's so much to unpack, but, uh, you became a kindergarten teacher and a special ed teacher at 23, which is like crazy because yeah, that's very young. Uh, how would you describe that time in your life, given that you were so young and you were dealing with rambunctious children? Yeah, I don't know if I would do it the same, to be honest, Kat. Um, <laughs> my, so my mother was an educator and my, my whole entire life, you know, obviously, like I said, you know, being a daughter of first generation immigrants, you have a lot to, that you want to prove. And so in my mind, I was like, well, my mother was an educator, so I need to be an educator. And, um, you know, I would, I would, in that regard, I would maybe make a different choice because I feel like I took a long time to get to where I exactly wanted to be. But yeah, so I started teaching at 23. I taught kindergarten at a charter school in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And it was a very interesting experience. I, I feel like, you know, what I had seen in, in my mother's career was a lot different than what I had seen in, in me being a teacher. I, I think that, you know, I had a I had a lot of 
great advice that I got from my mother and from her time being an educator. And I feel like uh, even though I did it at 23, I had a lot of support, um, at least, you know, through my mother. Uh, so I started working in a charter school. And in the time that I was in in high school, you know, 2007 to four years later, when I graduate, there's a lot of things that change within educational policy uh, nationwide. And so you're looking at No Child Left Behind, um, and then Obama made a, a different, I think it was called the IDEA Act. And so there was a lot of people focusing on testing and focusing on on scores and how that affected funding, but they weren't really you know, thinking about the, the people that the students would become. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I took you know, my trajectory as an educator was to be more focused on the people that my kids would become as opposed to you know, them doing good in, on tests. Mm -hmm. So um, it's safe to say that like you were disappointed in how like the system in general was set up. Super disappointed. Mm. Um, I feel like even when, you know, when my mom was teaching, she had, you know, different things that she thought could be different. But I was just like, but you get you get to kind of do what you want, you know, and and not to say that people that were educating, you know, pre uh, 1990s, we just did whatever they want. But I feel like they had a lot less. Uh, like stringent borders, uh, you know, from coming from the top down so they could really, uh, you know, take their time with it and to really, uh, you know, think about building up the kid. Yeah. And so when I get when I got onto the into the game, you know, I felt like it was a lot, a lot more of just people talking about funding and testing. And I was just like, I'm not about that. You know, I, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I know it's not this. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And, you know, like, I don't think that people understand how this impacts like the development of a child in terms of like just them keeping that that purity and that imagination and that creativity. It's like they kind of begin to like like test it out of them almost. It's like these kids don't even get a chance to develop that anymore and that's what eventually ends up, you know, making like the entrepreneurs and the artists of the world and and writers and you know like how are they going to yeah. develop into who they were supposed to be if all teachers care about are tests like there's so yeah. many people who are bad test takers. I was the worst test yeah. taker ever. I used to get anxiety and I used to like do, t I used to do terrible at tests. But once I was out of that environment, I was like writing and doing all the things. So it's like, I could have easily fallen into that, um, into that, that threshold of like bad test takers or bad, you know, students. And mm -hmm. that wasn't the case at all. It's just like, that's just not the best way to, to, to test the comprehension of a child always, you know? Right. I mean, I, I got a great example for you. The first year that I was teaching, uh, like I said, I was at a charter school in San Antonio, Texas. And um, this particular charter school had a lot of eyes on it because David Robinson, who was uh, the, we call him the admiral uh, from the San Antonio Spurs, he had developed the school. He had created the school. And so there was, uh, you know, always a bunch of eyes on it. And so, like, I remember, you know, eight, ten uh, adults coming in my classroom every single day with their suits and their iPads, you know, judging everything that the kids would do. And so one day, one of these, uh, you know, school leadership people came into my classroom. And, you know, at this point, I had already had it. I was like, this curriculum sucks. You know, the kids aren't really feeling it. And I'm trying to do the best that I can. This is my first year teaching. I'm having like panic attacks and anxiety attacks, like every day going into to work because the, the stakes were high and, you know, mm -hmm. people were getting like reprimanded in front of other teachers and whatnot. So this day, the, these people came into my classroom and, uh, you know, I had these like coloring sheets that I, you know, have the kids do to like take a break from it all because they were in kindergarten. They were taking uh, five tests a day sometimes, you That's know, ridiculous. And, 
and and, and based on, upon this crazy curriculum. And so this one person came into my classroom and she she pulled up, you know, what the what the young girl was doing. And she was like, uh, you need to reprimand her because she's not coloring this elephant realistically. So because the elephant was pink with yellow polka dots, it was it was not OK. She should have been coloring it gray and she should have been coloring it in the lines. And, you know, they were they were encouraging us to take uh, recess away from the kindergartners, you know, kindergarten. So I was like, I need to find a new profession, but I don't know what else to do. And I really love these kids. So, you know, I, I went to different schools each year, hoping that it would be different. Um, and sad to say, I haven't found I haven't found the right the right fit yet. But that's sad. You know that because in episode 51, we had Chloe Taylor, who basically in a lot of ways said what you said. She was teaching for over five years in New York City, and she realized that American education and the, the, the prioritization of curriculums here is just, like, very behind. It seems like it's a very common thing, and that's very unfortunate. So, you know, everything that you experienced in, in Texas and San Antonio is what inspired you to, like, pursue higher education. And then I'm wondering if this was around the time that you became inspired to start writing stories geared towards kids. Yeah, so I actually got inspired writing stories for kids my second year teaching. Mm. Um, so my second year teaching, I was teaching seventh and eighth grade special education, and I was essentially the like remedial reading teacher. And so my 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 kids, you know, they were on fourth grade reading level. Some of them should have been in the ninth grade. Some of them should have been in the eighth grade, and they were in the seventh and eighth grade. Um, and so. I, I felt like the curriculum was not culturally responsive. I was working um, at Brentwood Middle School, which is on the west side of San Antonio, Puro Mexicano. Mm -hmm. You know, some of these people hadn't even left their barrio, like, their entire life, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm having to teach you Emily Dickinson. Like, nah, bruh. Like, yeah. We're not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so what I started doing, I was like, well, you know, I built a rapport. I built a relationship with my with my students. And, you know, I know that if, if I write stories, they're going to tell me if they suck or not. Yep. So I started writing stories and, you know, I, I, I said, Hey, you know, it was kind of like Arsenio Hall. I, I did my story. Um, and they loved it. And so I was like, okay, I got to keep going. I got to, I got to keep doing this. And so throughout the time, really what saved my sanity throughout teaching was to develop or imagine this new, this new world. And sometimes I would take, I would do exercises with the kids where we would make up a story on our, you know, all on our own together, mm. like a, the class story of the day, you know, I would give them a sentence starter or whatnot, and then they would keep going with the story. And so really, um, me going to UM, was for, I really was just like fed up with the whole, you know, educational system. I was teaching a special education, you know, we talk about the school to prison pipeline, but we don't really, you know, talk a lot about the special education to prison pipeline, which, which happens a lot too. Um, and, you know, kids get uh, defined emotionally disturbed or oppositional defiant disorder. And then they go to this, you know, behavioral school and, you know, at least it, how it works in Texas is if you go to one of those schools, you can't go to a four year university if you wanted to. Really? Yeah. You have to go to because uh, you get like um, you get a different high school degree. Oh. Like it's like distinguished, recommended or like basic high school degree. So when you go through a behavioral school, you, you have a basic high school degree, meaning you can't go to a four year institution. You have to go to like a, an, a, a community college first if you if you go to college. Got it. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So there's these systemic things that kind of play out in the educational system. And so I was like, fuck that. Like, I'm going to I'm going to figure out how to, like, game the system. So yeah. 
I moved here to UM to, to get my degree in, in education and community psychology. And, and I thought that that would, you know, or, and, I, and it really did help inform my work. What did you learn in, at UM that you wouldn't have known otherwise? And how do you plan to put that all into practice? Yeah, so I feel, you know, people ask me, you know, sometimes my opinion about higher education. I think if people can get to that place to, to go for it, Obviously, there's still some systemic inequalities that we got to work through. But if people have the opportunity to go to college, I would say I would say go to college. Um, and really, it's you're you're not so much paying for the book for the book smarts, but you're paying for the experience, and 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 kind of having some of these doors open which haven't been open to us before. And so at UM, really a lot of it was unlearning, mm. even. You know, because at this point I had been working to help students unlearn, you know, some of the 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 colonized ways of education. But I hadn't really took the time to let that sit in the seat of my heart. And so I was unlearning a lot in regards to how I've been colonized um, as a woman, as a woman of color, um, as a Latinx person, you know, um, all of that, you know, um, yeah, I feel like UM really gave me the opportunity to work with other uh, nonprofits and organizations that were doing that same work and to be in the space, not as a student, but also as someone that has kind of some push or, or some power uh, behind it. So like right now, I, I just uh, this morning, I, I left a, a, a meeting with uh, FIU and the Education Effect. Um, they're doing some really great work in Little Haiti and Liberty City. And they want to continue doing that work in some some unconventional ways. So I think UM really helped me to uh, garner the attention, but also to to put some people on my radar that are doing some unconventional work in regards to decolonizing education. Mm. And what do you mean by that, by decolonizing education for those who are listening that are not familiar with the context of that? Yeah, so um, from the top down, um, I mean, even UM, you know, we have these Ivy League institutions that were put in place, you know, at, to a certain degree, uh, slaves and indigenous indigenous slaves were not able to 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 learn how to read and to write. And that was that was their system at that time to kind of keep us in the level that we were at. And so decolonizing education, I would say the first step of that is to have the access uh, to um, to these things that have been kind of locked away in these ivory towers. And also our, our, our pedagogy or, or our, our practice on how we teach education, right? So, you know, right now the model is I'm the teacher, I stand up and I deliver, and you're supposed to sit there and take notes. And that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the patriarchy right there. You know, the patriarchy tells you that this one person is an expert. And in my opinion, everybody is an expert. And that's what I try to, to, to build in my, in, in my classrooms, you know, the framework of having it be me teaching for a little bit and, and then me learning for a little bit, you know, and them talking to each other and teaching one another. Mm. Um, I think that that's kind of, you know, the basics of decolonizing education. We could continue, continue on. But, yeah, that's for sure it. That's the, yeah, I, I, totally, I totally see what you mean by that. And, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to know, about this term that you coined, which is the you're a child imagination specialist. And I guess in that same vein, that's where it all comes from, is like trying to get students and children to, to think big, to ask questions. But um, what, how would you describe what that means? Yeah, so the child imagination specialist really stemmed from 
me wanting to figure out a way to kind of uh, conglomerate my work, um, you know, in in that I've I've been a student all my life up until you know a May of this year, and I've been teaching for all my adult life. And so, what does that look like? <clears throat> and also, someone that has um, kind of experienced the different kinds of education, so private school, public school, charter schools. And, and military schools, um, alternative schools, all of those, I have a framework and a knowledge based upon. So I was like, okay, you know, can't everybody say that, you know? And so how do I, you know, in my millennial mind or whatnot, you know, kind of make this start working for me? And and also, you know, I write stories, but I also, I also make uh, toys. I have toy concepts for kids. Um, and I want to see, there's these, you know, a, uh, a few uh, TV shows that I'm writing some scripts for that I want to, you know, birth into the world. And so I was like, you know, if Mr. Rogers or um, uh, LeVar Burton from Reading Rainbow, if they could, if they could have called themselves something at the time, you know, what would they have called themselves? And And also being a woman of color, recognizing that there hasn't really been one of us in that space of you know, yes, we are teachers and yes, you know, we write stories and things of that nature, but I don't, I don't really know of many people, at least contemporarily that are talking that, you know, when, when they're talking about, they're talking about in the framework of changing the policy. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm coming at it from a creative standpoint. So what does it look like to raise the critical thinking and imagination levels of our youth? I can't just do that. And, in, in, you know, in the eight hours a day at school, I have to be able to to influence the the curriculums that are being placed in the schools. I have to be able to influence the literacy that is in the libraries. Um, I have to be able to influence the media that the children are seeing when they go home and they turn on the TV. Um, and so that, that's kind of where that that um, title has has stemmed from, is wanting to, to decolonize education, not just within the framework of a school. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, how do you put that into practice? Like, Let's say that somebody right now is listening and they're just like, hmm, I, I see what she means. But, you know, how do we take on something so complex in this way? Like, where do we start? Yeah, so right now what I've what I've been doing, um, you know, I've, I've been out of school since May. So I'm kind of um, trying to trying to pace myself in the work. Uh, but right now I, it's uh, I have I, I develop think tanks. So I really I very much believe in the think tank model. Not so much advisory boards, because I feel like advisory boards speak to more politics, Um, but a think tank, you know, speaks to this kind of, you know, you're thinking about, in a think tank, you're thinking about how to make a thing happen. And a lot of times that that is required, you know, you you need an imagination. Imagination is required for that. And so I think a lot of times, you know, people say, oh, I can't so much get to college, you know, and that's, that's, that's understandable, but we can all think you know, and, and a lot of times we've had that taken out of us. So if, you know, someone were listening and they wanted, you know, consultation and how to run their schools, I'm the person that I'd hope that they call and to really say, you know, this is, these are the kinds of people that you need to have within your school. So, Mm -hmm. you know, once you get to a certain level and, and the door has been open for you, you have to, I think any good person needs to find a way on how to open the door next, how to crack the window, how to burst the pipes open, um, so that other people can be coming in. So I finally have these, you know, credentials that don't really mean much to me, but to some people they do mean something. So it's like, okay, I know that there's, you know, uh, three other uh, children's book authors that really want to get their stuff in the schools. I have, I have 
you know, all these connections with schools. So how do we get your book into the school? How do we get the kids uh, curriculum to, to, to put your books in there? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's talking to, that's how, that's a multidisciplinary approach because you're talking to the school districts, you're talking to the curriculum uh, developers, you're talking to the educational policy uh, people uh, up in DC, you know, and to really be, you know, that consultant and that go between, between them all. Let's say a school called you right now and was just like, hey, we want to hire you as a consultant. What would be the first things that you'd look to in order to assess how healthy the curriculums of the schools are or how balanced they are? Or what things would stand out to you that, see, that would seem like they are not right or it could, mm-hmm. not conducive to the growth of the children? So the other, the other part about this work that I feel is there, there is not a lot of research right now about decolonizing education. I think a lot of people have stayed away from calling it decolonizing education. So I'm trying to sift through that research right now to see, you know, who's really talking about it in the, in the same frameworks, right? Because you have people that on the books, they say that they want to do certain things and not really, right? So I would say the first thing that I would do is to, is to ask them to let me see their curriculum. So if I was going into a middle school, I, I, let's just start with history, for example. Okay, let me see your history textbooks. And now I'm going over each history textbook. And right now, you know, I have, I have knowledge of Common Core Standards and uh, the TEKS, which is uh, the Texas Education uh, uh, Standards. And then you have um, the standards here in Florida, which is the Florida Standard of Education, uh, the FSA. Um, so you look at all three of those standards. You cross-reference, you know, what's going on at each, at each of those levels. So let's just take one unit, right? Let's take the unit on Columbus, for example. First of all, why is the unit on Columbus there and not the unit on, uh, let's see, Yanga uh, from, from Mexico? He was um, one of the maroon, the maroon fighters. Um, you know, why, why is that? Why is that the, the topic? So then I would ask each assistant principal, each principal or school leadership, why is this a unit that's being covered when we now have more information on, you know, these, these our maroon ancestors? And really putting it in their framework because, you know, a lot of times people don't want to hear it within the context of color. But, you know, that's really what, what the, system, the systemic inequality is, is to, hide our, is to hide our history. The other thing, there's a lot of curriculums that are kind of, do, you know, doing this work in, this, in the grassroots level. But they're not being um, contracted to be put in schools. Why is that? Who's the contract manager? Um, and really me not asking these questions on my own, but through the think tank. Uh, that hopefully there will be students and parents, other teachers involved, other um, uh, community leaders involved. Mm-hmm. The role that, that I think you're trying to take is also just like a, a diversity inclusion consultant in a lot of ways, because um, there aren't many people who are overseeing curriculums and are saying, hey, this is not inclusive or this is denying or like completely ignoring a, 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 an integral part of history that these kids need to know. Um, so that's just, to me, is what it seems like, and that's really important. But um, I'm curious to know what think takes you're part of, and in case people are listening are interested in, in getting into education or to finding a group of people that they can talk to in this way, even if it's not in Florida. But um, what are some that, that you love that you think are doing really good work? Well, right now the think tanks that I belong to are more at a grassroots level. Um, and so some, you know, parts parts of the think tank's, are, you know, we're trying to figure out right now, how do we go public? 
I belong to a, a family-driven uh, think tank. Uh, it's a family out in Texas that is uh, doing some work in an African-centered, um, an African-centered school in San Antonio. Uh, belong to that think tank. Belonging to a think tank of of people here, and it's more it's it's more about imagination and less about education. And so that's also where the where the stories come through. Um, Afrofuturism is a, a genre that I really uh, gravitate towards. And within that genre, it is, you know, imagining what people of color look like in the future because we haven't been there. Um, and so my passion to bring to the table in these think tanks is this, this educational piece, you know, looking at Mary McLeod Bethune's life that started out here in Florida um, and, uh, and even in Miami recruiting students to go to her school um, from Miami. And looking at uh, really doing the research right now. So the thing, the two think tanks that I belong to, we're in the research phase. We we're not in the development phase. Um, a good think tank, you're you're doing research and then you're doing you know the development. Um, so right now, what what I am doing, um, I guess more so, is focusing on my stories and finding the curriculums that are you know the academic curriculums that are out there that just haven't been uh, tapped as a resource just yet um, on the grand scale. Okay, that that makes sense. So I really want to get into your your new book, The Alphabet of Enchantment Island, which you recently started crowdfunding for. Um, I want to know all about it. It is a beautiful bilingual alphabet book about the magic of being Boricua and the African heritage of Puerto Rico. And I'm really interested in learning about what inspired it. I mean, you're Afro-Latina, so like, I mean, I'm sure that's that's obviously an integral part of it. But like, I want to know what inspired you to title it this way. Yes. Uh, so the alphabet of enchantment Island, I wrote, I would say, I think it was either the same year that I was teaching those seventh and eighth graders or the year after. And, uh, okay. So much to unpack here. So talking about being the first, the dot, the only daughter of first generation immigrants, uh, being the oldest, um, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and part of the unpacking is, um, how to, how to conceptualize your parents' assimilation as an adult, right? Because as a kid, you don't really have a choice, right? It's like, okay, my parents want to assimilate, and this is how we're going to do it. So, you know, I grew up, I would say, in some ways, you know, very Latin, and in other ways, very American. Um, you know, so some some Thanksgivings, we had pernil, some Thanksgivings, we had turkey, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I guess, depending on what my, my parents wanted at the time, um, and so my, my father's family is from Panama and I had went there as a child a few times and, you know, I felt, I felt connected to that side of the family, but my Puerto Rican side of the family. So, you know, in, in Puerto Rican history, we were able to, uh, gain cit American citizenship. So, um, my grandmother was one of the first people to, to move to New York out of my family and pretty much everyone, you know, followed her to New York. And uh, somewhat abandoned, in my opinion, abandoned their, you know, uh, Puerto Rican homes and heritage and whatnot. And so me growing up, you know, I, I didn't grow up in New York. I was born there. But, um, you know, for a lot of my life, I felt like I didn't really know my Puerto Rican side of the family. My mom, you know, she wanted to raise her children differently than how she was raised. And so, she, you know, she she kind of I don't want to say locked us up in the country, but, you know, we. <laughs> That, that yeah, she, we, she kept us in the country. You know, we didn't we didn't really venture out a lot. And so now, you know, as I'm as I'm getting older and as I'm traveling a lot more and you know whatnot, I 
I wanted to get to know Puerto Rico. I was like, what am I doing, doing all this traveling? And I haven't even gone to Puerto Rico. So that was the other thing I hadn't, I hadn't gone to Puerto Rico until like the year, uh, 2016. Wow. Until the first time I went, I was just like, man, I gotta, I gotta, you know, I gotta do something about this. I've been sitting on this story for a long time and now I feel even more compelled to like pick it back up. So I first started writing the story and then I picked it back up after I, I visited Puerto Rico. And that was simultaneously happening um, with me being at UM and, and learning some more of these theoretical frameworks on decolonizing education. And then at the, at the top of this year, um, I, I, I even got a greater push. I had visited my great grandmother who's 99 years old a uh, hundred years old, depending on, you know, what, uh, paperwork we're looking at, <laughs> but, um, you know, she's still alive. She lives in Wash Heights and I went to go visit her in the beginning of this year. And, you know, I knew, I knew about her life, but I never really sat and asked her about it, you know? And so I sat there and she's giving me, this woman is giving me her slave narrative from her being a kid, you know, and she, she's still alive. You know, people want to talk about, oh, you know, we're, we're in a post-racialized society. You know, race doesn't, it's not a construct anymore, da, da, da. And I would kind of agree, but I'd also say we still have people that are living that went through slavery. And I can attest to that. You know, people that are actually alive that went through slavery. So what that looked like for her was uh, uh, two Puerto Rican uh, doctors, uh, I believe that they were dentists, uh, they would travel from New Orleans to Puerto Rico. They had like traveling dentist business. And so my, my great grandmother as a young kid was, you know, kind of loaned out um, from her. So her mother passed away when she, uh, in childbirth and she was taken care of by her tia, which was, um, you know, a lot lighter than her. Um, my grandmother is a very dark skinned woman. And so she was like, OK, well, we'll just take the orphan and the orphan will, you know, make some money for us kind of thing. Um, and so she would go back and forth to New Orleans to be the, the mother, or excuse me, the, um, the woman of the house's slave, essentially, you know, the, whatever she needed, my great grandmother was, was, you know, there to give it to her. And my great grandmother was like, what, like in her like mid teens at this time, you know? Um, <laughs> and so needless to say, there's a lot of, a lot of things that I felt a sense of urgency to get out there, you know, excuse me, my great grandmother's not going to be alive forever. Um, and I, I want to be able to tell her story and the story of our forgotten ancestors well, and our forgotten elders. Um, and so the alphabet of Enchantment Island is really in response to that. And to really imagine a different kind of Puerto Rico. So before I went right before I went to Puerto Rico, right after Hurricane Maria hit, um, and you know, before, and it's crazy because before then there were already these disaster capitalists and, and vulture funds already on the ground. And they were, they are, they knew that something was going to happen. You know, they, it was just a matter of time for them. And so they were shutting down schools and, you know, there were people kind of rising up on the Island, um, you know, cause they were saying like, oh, well you, you all have this major debt incurred to the United States. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, we never even wanted this, you know, from the Spanish American war. This is why we are part of the, uh, uh, the American territories, because the Spanish lost the war and the Spanish owned Puerto Rico at the time. And so now who owns Puerto Rico? The United States government. And so uh, with all of that kind of, you know, I, I tend to analyze a lot. And so I was just thinking about that constantly. And I was like, you know what? I can do something about that. And the way that I can do that is writing stories for kids. It's something that I'm good at. 
um, something that I can always get better at. And I knew that I had to tell that story first because Puerto Rico means so much to me, considering that I felt like I couldn't, I, I didn't have access to Puerto Rico growing up because, like I said, my parents were trying to assimilate. And, you know, that's the story of a lot of people. You know, we, we lose our roots along the way. We lose what, what grounded us along the way. And then somebody else, you know, turns it over, pays $3,000 for it. And, you know, now they have some shaman retreat, you know, some curandera fake ass retreat in the woods, <laughs> you know, and that's what it is what it is. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, what, so the book basically talks about um, celebrating our ancestors and, and celebrating what it means to be uh Puerto Rican like in in like the indigenous way is that what it is yeah so I approach you know I don't really uh have a curriculum it's uh, breaking up developed right now but I was like oh oh okay so, uh, breaking up yeah uh, better yeah let's start it over uh just start that again okay um so uh, right now I don't have any curriculum developed um, I'm developing a curriculum, but I said, you know, in, in the interim, I can continue to write the story. So I kind of took this, like, what would I say if I was teaching history class? And so, you know, I highlight Jesus Colon, father of the New Eureka movement. I highlight Lolita Lebron, who was one of our first nationalist freedom fighters. You know, I highlight Arturo Schomburg. Um, you know, he was uh, a man that did a lot of research and, you know, a distinguished gentleman. But, you know, he went to New York and he did a lot, not just for Puerto Rico, but for the diaspora, um, and a lot of, and I think also too, 